I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are international, on air across the U.S. and in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of colour. Today, our main event conversation, Donald Trump, first black pastors, now a black president of the NAACP, to be precise. Hot Topic 1, legendary black feminist icon Bell Hooks on legendary black icon artist Beyonce and her album Lemonade. Hot Topic 2, Haiti joins the African Union. And just what happened to that $500 million the Red Cross raised for Haiti post the 2010 earthquake? All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Dr. Brittany Cooper and Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. They're both scholars, public intellectuals, and writers. Dr. Brittany Cooper is Assistant Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Africana Studies at Rutgers University. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay is Associate Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at The Ohio State University. And Dr. Lindsay contributes articles to Cosmopolitan Online. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. Our main event conversation. First, black pastors, now a black president, the NAACP president, who's invited GOP nominee Donald Trump to speak at its annual July National Convention. This is a sobering moment in the country in that uh, Mr. Trump is the presumptive nominee. Uh, he is running for an office that represents the whole of the United States. We the people includes all the people of every ethnicity, every hue, every heritage. And so now's the time for him to speak clearly in depth and detail with respect to his immigration policy, with respect to the minimum wage, with respect to a civil rights agenda. We have heard scarcely a word from Donald Trump with respect to restoration of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, what is his opinion or perspective with respect to police misconduct and police brutality? Uh, the point being here is we need to hear him speak clearly as to the issues because here's what we've noticed. What he's been clear about is concerning. What, has, what he is of concern to the country, uh, quite often he's not been clear about. And so we are extending an invitation to him as, we've extended, uh, as we extend an invitation to Secretary Clinton to come and stand before, stand flat-footed before the convention of the NAACP, which will be the same week as the Republican National Convention. NAACP President Cornell Brooks there talking to CNN's Wolf Blitzer. Cornell Brooks explained he had not heard anything specific from Donald Trump regarding policy on issues around race. Hmm. Hmm. Nothing specific? Let's go back to May 1989. Donald Trump took out a full-length ad in connection with five black and brown teenagers accused of the rape and brutal assault of a white woman in Central Park one month earlier. You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally. You better believe it. The five teenage black and brown boys, aged 14 to 16, Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana, Corey Wise, and Youssef Salam, would become known as the Central Park Five. All five denied any involvement. They were charged and pled not guilty. All five were convicted in 1990, 
primarily due to coerced confessions, some beaten out of them by New York police. They spent 13 years in prison. In 2002, all five were acquitted when the actual rapist came forward. His DNA was found on the 28-year-old victim. No DNA from any of the five was ever found on the victim. The five teenagers had been picked up by police after entering Central Park that same night. Then teenagers and now young men, they spent several more years fighting for compensation. The five finally won a $40 million settlement from New York City. Here's Youssef Salam, then 15 years old and now 41, talking about the climate at the time and his reaction to and feelings about Donald Trump, who is now the GOP nominee. In May of 1989, Donald Trump read an ad that ran in all of the major newspapers. In this ad, he basically was saying, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. When I first saw this ad that Donald Trump made, I knew that this famous person calling for us to die was very serious. People wanted to see how the justice system would work. And so they were looking at this case as a litmus test to see whether the justice system would actually be just or not. And it became very clear that there was this huge black and white kind of thing. These black and brown individuals had raped a white woman in Central Park. That was the worst thing that, could, that anyone could have ever done. Common citizens were not given the opportunity to make their own judgments. Common citizens were being manipulated and swayed into believing that we were guilty. The simple premise was that if your name was in the paper, if you look like a criminal because of the color of your skin, well, you have to be guilty. So Donald Trump, he was the fire starter, I would say. Because when you think about going to jail for a crime that you didn't commit, one day in jail is too long. And when we won the lawsuit, his stance was that we pulled off the biggest heist in New York City's history. But to see that he has not changed his position of being a hateful person, to see that he has not changed his position of inciting people, to see that he's still the same person and in many ways he's perfected his sense of being that number one insider. What would this country look like with Donald Trump as being, being the president? So the ad came out in 1989. In 2015, when the payout was made, Donald Trump wrote a scathing opinion piece in New York's Daily News calling the payout, quote, a disgrace, unquote, the heist of the century, and that it revealed the, quote, stupidity of the criminal justice system, unquote. Five black and brown teenage boys, 13 years in prison for a crime they did not commit, a fight several more years for a $40 million payout, labeled a disgrace and a heist by the white Republican nominee for the GOP. The same wall building, Mexicans are rapist saying man who agreed to pay legal fees for his supporters who were assaulting black protesters. And the NAACP is confused about his stance on issues like race, police brutality and black and brown folk. I'm confused by their confusion. Let's talk the NAACP and their invitation to Donald Trump to speak at their July National Convention. Dr. Brittany Cooper, let me start with you. The NAACP just continues to be a disappointment. It's absolutely inexplicable that they would invite this race-baiting hate monger to speak to the conference 
one of the things that is so interesting about this is that there was a quarter century, a literal quarter century between um, the brutal rape of this woman in Central Park and the settlement for these young men uh, by the city of New York. Uh, so that means that Donald Trump had a quarter century to reform or rethink many of his most incendiary views. And instead, he doubled down and suggested that even though we are clear that we have indisputable, incontrovertible evidence that these young men did not, in fact, violate uh, and brutally harm this woman, uh, that they should receive no justice from the system. Uh, and so there really is nothing for the NAACP to talk about, in my estimation, not when you consider the history of that organization, which mobilized many of its earliest political work around uh, fighting the, the lynching of black men who were often uh, – falsely, who are mostly falsely accused of raping white women. And so Donald Trump plays into a long and nasty history of the ways in which white men mobilize state power on their behalf by, uh, by enacting violence against black men and by uh, promoting ideas about black male, uh, black men being rapists. Uh, and so he's part of that history. And so now the, so the racial rhetoric that we see from him towards Latino people and towards uh, Arab folk uh, is, is part of this longer trajectory that when we trace this political rhetoric begins with him mobilizing the oldest uh, tropes of racism against uh, African-American people. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay. I was rereading the ad that he took out, and in it he actually references police brutality as something the claims of police brutality are something police need to be unshackled from. And to think in 25 years, as I just mentioned, there's been so little movement. In fact, in fact, I would say movement even farther right in terms of the number of groups he's placing under these racist attacks and this racist metropolic language that we see this movement towards that, that he's not going to be someone who's responding to Black Lives Matter. He's not someone who's going to be responding in an effective way to our, how we address immigration, how we talk about undocumented people in humane ways, how we talk about refugees, how we talk about Muslim citizens and Muslim non-citizens in our nation. This is a really important thing to look at to see this man is not only rigid in his viewpoint, but absolutely digs his heels in around issues of race and racism more specifically. And I think the NAACP in its history, knowing that state violence has been something that the NAACP in its history is adamantly advocating against, it is so striking that we would have him come in knowing on record on so many different points in a history of having such charged, racially charged and racist language, rhetoric, and even going so far as to taking actions that show how much he's committed to police brutality as a necessary use of force is so telling and should be telling enough for the NAACP to draw a line in the sand. And we have to ask at this point, at what point do we draw that line in the sand? At what point do we say to the NAACP as people of color, as African Americans, we no longer vest in you as this civil rights organization, that this is not where we are as a people. This is not what we need. This is not what we can stand for. You know, and let me add to uh, you know that that one of the things that bothers me about this this kind of political theater is that 
this is evidence of the ways in which black people uh, historically enter the public sphere and attempt to reason with white racists, right? So I think that part of the logic of this is, you know, the organization says we don't want to appear partisan, so we want to invite everyone to the table. We want to give everyone an equal opportunity to speak for our people. We want to our people. We want to, you know, recognize the diversity in black political thought. But the reality is that that's a farce, that the, the, the good faith with which we approach those on the right is never reciprocated. It's never returned. And so I am ready for black organizations to stop feeling like our claims are only objective if, if we sit at the table with people who would otherwise kill us when given the first opportunity, would otherwise mobilize their considerable levels of economic and political power to do harm to black communities. That is what we're sitting at the table negotiating with. I mean, and in this way, we should take a clue, an ironic clue, from the United States, which says we don't negotiate with terrorists. Why would the NAACP sit down and negotiate with a man who has made clear his animus towards communities of color? There's literally nothing he could say that should make any black person feel compelled to vote for him. And those black people who have already decided that they're going to vote for him, uh, misguided as they are, certainly don't need him to have the stage at the NAACP in order to do that work. And so there's so much more of a, of, of a use of that organization's resources to help black communities, uh, its resources and its time, than spending it or wasting it on this person who clearly means us no good and has been very explicit in saying so. Right. I mean, what does it mean to invite someone who intends harm, who has spoken to harm, who has spoken to acts of violation against our communities? What is in it for us? What do we gain with that? I'm clear about what we lose, but I'm certainly lost on what is gained by having someone you know can't stand you and is actually working against your existence on so many levels at your table. So this is what... There is nothing to negotiate with. I yeah, so this is where I, I, I do two things. I definitely question the institutional decision of the NAACP, and then I question the individual leadership of Cornell Brooks. Because the NAACP extending an invitation to Donald Trump is egregious. It is egregious. It is outrageous. They do not need a lesson on the, the institution's own history in fighting the kind of race-baiting racism that Donald Trump issues at every rally. For the, for the president of the organization to sit in a mainstream media studio and talk about a lack of clarity on issues around race and policy is just extraordinary. Either you've literally been absent from the news for the past however many months this whole um, campaign has been going on, or there's a secondary question about which is one that came up with the pastors, and that is, what do you think you gain in terms of a seat at a supposed power table by inviting him to take not just the stand, but the mic from literally thousands and thousands of black people, given the kind of platform the NAACP is, and a man who already has huge amounts of media time given him in comparison to everybody else, will then be given a stage when he has clearly identified how little regard he has for any, no black life matters to him. So what is Cornell Brooks confused about? Seriously, it's a serious question. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds like the man, uh, you know, look, this is all I really can say. I don't even know that I have an answer to that. Uh, he's confused, and I think the period is on the sentence in that place. Um, but 
if the NAACP wants any kind of relevance in the 21st century, particularly to the young folks who are in the streets and who are agitating, uh, then it's going to have to change the ways in which it does business, and it's going to have to stop towing this totally conservative line. Even if the NAACP says that it wants to continue to do the kinds of things that it's done before in terms of, like, legal advocacy uh, to help black communities, there are a whole generation of young people who could stand for some mentorship and some access uh, and some training around how to do those things in ways that are really effective in communities. And that is what uh, NAACP chapters could actually offer in this moment. And instead, they're doing this sort of shameless pandering uh, to, to try to get a seat at the table, uh, and, and, then, and, then they, and then they look askance at young folks who are like, you know, screw it, we're going to smash the table, right? But this is why, because this is why there's such distrust uh, intergenerationally between young black leaders and more established black leaders because of these kinds of inexplicable compromises. Absolutely, and I want to note that some of the chapters in the NAACP individual branches have been speaking back and are appalled by this as well. So I think there is some kind of disconnect if we're thinking about somewhere like the North Carolina NAACP, which is adamant in fighting against and fighting the back against the horrendous anti, <laughs> anti-trans and this very much pro-discrimination bill, um, HB2 in North Carolina, that the NAACP was actually one of the places that was speaking out against that. So I think it's really important to note there is also this disconnect, and I like that you highlighted the president of the organization and some of the leadership that's even disconnected from some of its own membership. Um, and, and I think that's a really important thing to see what's happening on the ground, what are happening in specific communities, because the strength of the NAACP has in quite, in quite some time has been its local chapters, what it's been able to do, what it's been able to mobilize on college campuses, what it's been able to mobilize in particular cities. And so to see the national direction take such a stark and just indefensible, if you ask me, position with regards to Trump by having him come, I think they're going to also lose out on some genuine support from their local chapters. I think people are going to start to question the integrity of this organization in ways that certainly questions have arisen more recently, but I think this is, could be a nail in the coffin moment um, if there isn't a real conversation between national leadership and local chapters who are doing um, more on-the-ground work or doing the kind of political advocacy and community organizing that Dr. Cooper mentioned. And just going from, the, from Donald Trump's bully pulpit to the ballot box, given the actual, the actual possibility that Donald Trump could be president, given the, the, the decimation of the Voting Rights Act, with NAACP's history as a mainstream civil rights movement, for whom voting matters so, it's, it's such a crucial part of the organization that wouldn't now be the time to do some really serious organizing to bring far more black folk to the ballot box and to look at creative and organizational ways to actually do that work, given so many of the um, gains around ensuring um, Sunday voting, um, from the pews to the polls, early registration, all of these things that allowed for more people to vote. And all the research shows that when the higher numbers of people turn out, it is more likely to be a Democratic win than a Republican. Hence, the Republicans literally pushing for 
um, measures that continually to continue to erode citizens' right to vote. So I'm also genuinely confused that given that that's a reality, Cornell Brooks actually spoke about where does Donald Trump stand on the decimation of the Voting Rights Act? He stands for its further decimation. Like, why is that a conversation? And so to your point, Trevor, in terms of the organizing on the ground, where are those, where is that generation? And I'm interested to know more about their voices in terms of um, not just the, 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 they, they rail against what they see as the continuing irrelevance um, to even have a seat at a table that is inviting a race-baiting, rhetoric, racist-filled man. They're railing at that already. So that part we know. But I'm interested to know and whether there are louder voices on the ground that we're so far not hearing who are actually articulating a clearer resistance um, to the institution's direction in this looking for crumbs of power at a table to which they will not even be invited. There are a few conundrums here. One is around um, that there's real disillusionment um, among certain segments of black activist communities around voting, right? Because the problem is that choices continue to seem limited in what um, I think the young people are in a moment where they are pushing for a different vision of the world. And so they are very, uh, they slash we are in many ways disillusioned with the choices that we continue to get. I think where I diverge is that I still think that voting matters in this way, but I understand that there are legitimate positions around why voting, particularly at the level of the presidency, does not, you know, doesn't work and seems to just be a supportive empire. I think that the larger conversations we have to have are around increasing political education, um, around voting and changing um, voter behavior uh, at the local and the municipal level. And we are seeing uh, this generation of, this new generation of activists get that uh, in places like Cleveland, where they voted out uh, the district attorney who refused to prosecute the police who killed Tamir Rice. Uh, We're seeing it in Chicago where they voted out the district attorney, Anita Alvarez, uh, who wouldn't prosecute the cover-up of the cops who covered up the murder of Laquan McDonald. Uh, so in certain pockets, you're seeing uh, an increased uh, uh, political consciousness around the importance of voting at the local and state level. Uh, and I think that that's another thing that local NAACP chapters can do and are doing in particular places like North Carolina that Dr. Lindsay talked about is they are definitely going hard at legislation that's happening on the local and state level. We've got to figure out, though, how we're going to shift the conversation at the national level because um, because the level of disillusionment on the left uh, is one of the things that might ensure a Trump presidency. But I understand why folks continue to feel like they're being held hostage always to participate and to support candidates that they don't really like because they want to keep candidates out that would be absolutely monstrous uh, and horrendous for communities of color. And surely we deserve better choices than that. I think the local level is where I've been most impressed with the kind of political mobilization around voting and electoral politics is happening. I think seeing those victories in places like Cleveland and Chicago, and I, I put a quotations around victories because a lot of these offices still can reproduce certain kinds of violence and violation, even with new bodies <laughs> in those spaces. Right. But to understand getting to very, very, very contentious figures who were 
important decision makers in these cases of state violence against black bodies, I think is a really important move um, to make and an important mobilization and saying, how do we get that energy turned to a national focus when we feel like the national landscape is even more um, troubling and disturbing and seems like the worst of the worst, you know, this kind of constant refrain of always having to choose between the lesser of two evils. But that framing of voting, I think this generation of activists and those who we would see kind of doing that political advocacy work we may even have seen even maybe at this point eight years ago in terms of electoral politics at the national level is just over it. Um, is really over it, and in a way that that's building political capital around, let's take the work and just work on the ground and do that work. And I know there are a lot of folks who are like, I'm not okay with that <laughs> as an option because this next president will probably choose three Supreme Court justices. Um, this next person will, be, will really shape the course of this nation for decades to come in a way, especially if it's someone like Trump. And so I think these conversations have to happen in more nuanced um, in, in more nuanced and more dynamic ways than they're happening right now. And I think there's a lot of tension even within activist communities about how we get people invested in the electoral process at the national level with, at the national level, these politics seem even more disgusting and horrendous than we felt them to be in the last 20 to 25 years. And I think that there's some people who kind of can serve maybe as bridge people within that conversation who really understand that position of being so disillusioned to the point of not participating and understand the point of what is at stake when we don't participate. And I think being able to articulate along those lines is going to be so significant for shifting this conversation in more productive and politically progressive ways in the long run. Mm. Um, I remember... um uh, Bl- Brooklyn representative Charles Barron also always spoke about, of course, all politics is local, even when it's presidential, it's still local. Um, but it was important for communities, especially activist communities, to recognize that electoral politics was a limited power, but it was a power nonetheless that could significantly um, Im- impact their lives. And that the issue was not to rail against the um, disintegration of electoral politics, but to recognize how to engage even its limited power to do the most that it can to create policy that will beneficially impact black people's lives. And that that was the way to think about engaging it in order to deal with the activist tendency and the disillusionment, the real disillusionment as a result of what doesn't even feel like a choice when you think about... um, Um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton's hawkish policy, but really is because, I mean, with Donald Trump, I mean, it really is a a return to a historical moment in America's history that is just, frankly, terrifying. It is just terrifying. So, Mr. Cornell Brooks, we might invite you to reconsider your invitation to Donald Trump to speak, which means, in plain speak, oh, hell no. You can't invite the man to the table. Oh, hell no. Ain't nobody got time for that. Exactly.
That was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Brittany Cooper and Dr. Trevor B. Lindsay. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in 3FM's Accra Studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the U.S. in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for the first of our hot topics, Bell Hooks on Beyonce. Bell Hooks is a legendary black feminist icon, an award-winning writer, social activist, and author, a woman whose work on race, class, and gender has guided and influenced thousands and thousands of women all over the world, whether they call themselves feminist or not, including all three here on The Spin. Bell Hooks has published more than 30 books, written scholarly articles and essays, all grappling with issues around black women, love, patriarchy, sexism, racism across mass media, education, art and history. It's her latest work we're going to discuss. Bell Hooks has just published a piece on Beyonce's global groundbreaking second visual album, Lemonade. The piece is called Moving Beyond Pain. It was published on her website, the Bell Hooks Institute. It is a complex and complicated critique of the album. Bell Hooks writes, and I quote, Lemonade offers viewers a visual extravaganza, a display of black female bodies that transgresses all boundaries. It's all about the body and the body as commodity. This is certainly not radical or revolutionary. From slavery to the present day, black female bodies, clothed and unclothed, have been bought and sold, unquote. Bell Hooks goes on, quote, Viewers who like to suggest Lemonade was created solely or primarily for black female audiences are missing the point. Commodities, irrespective of their subject matter, are made, produced and marketed to entice any and all consumers. Beyonce's audience is the world and that world of business and money making has no color, unquote. And Bell spoke about Serena Williams, the tennis champion who appears in the visual album and said, quote, the scantily clothed dancing image of athlete Serena Williams also evokes sportswear, unquote. And this, even though Beyonce and her creative collaborators daringly offer multidimensional images of black female life, much of the album stays within a conventional stereotypical framework where the black woman is always a victim, unquote. Bell Hooks had previously spoken about what she describes as Beyonce's, quote, harmful, unquote, visual aesthetic, particularly for young black girls, during a 2014 panel discussion at Eugene Lang College, where Bell was scholar in residence. The panel was called, Are You a Slave? Liberating the Black Female Body. Then Bell described Beyonce as a terrorist. Listen. My concern, though, is that whole idea, again, when we think about containment, that we say, oh, but this person who is doing um, major harm, let's say, because I, I see a part of Beyonce that is, in fact, anti-feminist, um, that is assaulting, that is a terrorist, um, in the sense of, um, especially in terms of the impact on young girls. Bell Hook's piece prompted widespread reaction and some written responses, including one from Erica Thurman. Her response was called, Bell, Black Girls Are Healing and It Is Glorious. 
And there was a social media response from New York Times bestselling author Janet Mock, where she challenged Bell and all women to disengage from dismissing glamour as a valid point of entry for discussions around Beyonce. Janet Mock was on the initial panel during which Bell described Beyonce as a terrorist. Janet Mock wrote on her Facebook page, and I quote, Let's discuss the dismissal of black femme feminists, which I feel parts of Bell's critique is steeped in. They reek of judgment of glamour, femininity and femme presentations. It echoes dismissal of femmes as less serious, colluding with patriarchy, merely using our bodies rather than our brains to sell, be seen, survive. We gotta stop this. All of us. Femme feminists, writers, thinkers, artists are consistently dismissed, pressured to transcend presentation in order to prove our woke ability. Our dressed up bodies and big hair do not make us any less serious. Our presentations are not measurements of our credibility. These hierarchies of respectability that generations of feminists have internalized will not save us from patriarchy. Let's talk bell hooks. On Beyonce. Dr. Treva B. Lindsay, let me start with you. The beauty of this moment I want to highlight for one second is all of these amazing black feminist thinkers, writers, folks, creators, scholars, activists, writing and thinking and producing work. Um, if anything, Lemonade has produced a whole nother body of work um, to really think about, which I do think is feminist kind of praxis, the ways in which we collaborate and build off of one another. But I do think with the Bell Hooks piece, what we see here is, first, a very interesting kind of thing we don't often get to talk about in these spaces, but after your work does a lot with this, is emotionality and some feelings that are being articulated that come through in this. I, reading the critique that comes through in this, even when she is seemingly starting to kind of sort of appreciate the work for what it is, there's this quick thing, but it doesn't do it all, and it can't do this. This is an undue patriarchy. It's still commodity. It's still this. It is still that. It's still all these things that don't get us free. And that reading of it, as, as the one, that's the way in which we're all reading this piece, as the lemonade is the liberation of black women, versus this is something that black women are taking very seriously and have taken up in ways that are so meaningful um, on political reasons, on personal reasons, on the political personal conversions that we see. Um, Bell also labeled this woman a terrorist at one point, and that is such incredibly strong language and pointed language in a moment in which terrorism is a, is a language we're all using. It's ubiquitous in terms of how we frame certain acts of violence that are happening in the world to frame this woman in this way and then to feel compelled to respond once again in ways that say she's not doing enough. In fact, she's really re recreating these systems, reinvesting in these systems of oppression, just feels like a continued thread of, I don't like what this is bringing to the conversation. I don't like that this is where feminism seems to be headed. I don't fit into this feminism, and I must remind you of these kinds of feminist practices and theories that one that she's one of the main authors of, but also this kind of generational divide, this investment in popular culture that I think is very different from when she's writing about popular culture. I think the ways in which black feminists in this moment have picked, excuse me, picked up popular culture has been in a very different way that is both engaging with the discursive, but is also saying there is something about popular culture that tells us something about our material realities that allows us to think to, through the material realities of black women's existence that's very different. And we don't see it in the same way that 
our foremothers and some of our foremothers like Belle did. And in this, some of this is kind of the tools of that femininity, the way in which femininity is read and the way in which those who do have a high femme performance are read within the context of feminism. I think Janet Mock's analysis is spot on in saying we need to think about femphobia and horophobia, um, which is a term that I love that she used in this, in terms of how we're thinking about who gets to have a feminist card, who gets to play on the feminist playground, who do we actually think is on the feminist battleground. And if we're saying that Beyonce can't do it and yet she's doing all of this for black women, one must ask, what is Belle missing and what are those who are very in line with what Belle is thinking and how Belle is critiquing this work, what are they missing in terms of engaging how black women, girls, femmes, trans, and queer folks are taking up this work and building their own work from it? So I think there's a genuine disconnect, but some of that is rooted in emotionality. Some of this is rooted in a different set of politics. And some of this is rooted in the moves that have happened in cultural studies and popular cultural criticism that have happened in the last 20 years that I think Belle diverges from at a certain point. Dr. Brittany Cooper. When I read Bell's critique, it was interesting because the first thing that I thought was, oh, this is interesting because this is how I learned to do black feminist cultural criticism. And I was reminded that in many ways, Bell Hooks invented this particular genre of writing. In many ways, she invented the terms by which we learned to do black feminist pop culture criticism before anyone else was doing it. Uh, you know, there were maybe a couple, but ultimately she was doing it and, and was the best at it. Uh, and so I want to give her credit for that. And so mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the challenges of, this disconnect is that I don't understand why Belfast doesn't understand that in some ways this is the world that she helped to create. I don't understand why she doesn't understand that the ways in which she challenged our very retrograde um, rep- the very re- retrograde representations of black women in popular culture has trickled down to a couple of generations of black feminist women both in the academy and outside, many of whom are now content creators and are creatives and make film and make video and, and make music, and so these are all folks who are, are in many ways beneficiaries of the work that Belhus has done, and they are trying, you know, I don't know that Beyonce has directly read Belhus, but I imagine that she's uh, being, uh, she's working with a team of people who absolutely have, and so in this way, I think that much of the work and m- many of the pushes that Belhus has made over her, you know, 35-year career uh, as an academic are showing up in the work, and so the inability to misrecognize this, the inability to, to you know, that there's another way that she could claim credit in this genealogy as this being of the work that she has built. Um, I think the the other thing that is really interesting to me is so Bell Hooks really comes into the academy in the early 1980s. She's part of the first wave of black feminist women coming into the academy, doing formal women's studies as women's studies programs are being established. And she bucks the trend uh, in women's studies programs around like saying that, you know, they need to be highly academic by by daring and indeed gaining to speak back to and with black communities who are outside of the academy. And so for those of us like myself who have also 
set up careers in that way, she becomes the model. But it's interesting because there's still a power dynamic there where she's in the academy speaking back to communities outside of the academy. And now what's happening is that much of what's happening in the academy is being influenced by things that are happening outside the academy. And I think that there's this resistance because much of what's happening in social media, what much of what's happening in the streets, is forcing those of us who are academics to change the way that we theorize, to change the ways that we think about things. And we have a and, and because of social media, these communities of color, these young women and young fins and young queer folks who are not in the academy often speak back to us and tell us what works for them, and they tell us what doesn't. And so they have totally disrupted the top-down model of academe that Bell Hooks also tried to challenge but ultimately did not upend. And so I think that there's a discomfort there that also deserves being talked about, that, on the, that the way in which she says Beyonce does not ultimately upend capitalism or does not ultimately up into patriarchy, then one of the things that she might need to think about is the ways in which the, the young folks who are driving pop culture into our feminist theorizing are upending the, the way that knowledge production actually happens. And it's one thing to say that you're about that life, that Bell Hooks has built a career say. It's another thing to really be confronted with what it looks like when the power is actually not at the top but is actually being pushed up from below and to deal with your discomfort around that. And in that way, then we get back to this point that both your work makes Esther and that Treva is pointing to around dealing with our own emotions when the world that we've been pushing for actually shows up uh, and it looks and it doesn't look quite like we thought it would look. And then what do we do? Then? So it's interesting to me. I mean, this is a this is a, a show that is an all women of color media panel. And I'm on the air with um, two really serious, phenomenal black feminist scholars. And Bell Hooks is considered a black feminist icon. So I, I want to honor and acknowledge her as an elder, as a as a leader as a creator of something really, really important. I don't self-ID as feminist. I don't claim feminism. I have read Bell Hooks and think she's phenomenal. And some of her work has shaped my thinking in terms of how I'm politicized. So I want to honor her as an elder, as, an, a, as a leader before I speak. Having then said that, I think that what I'm witnessing is the reality of the collision of individual emotionality with an institutional ideology. So that this is really a struggle between Bell Hook's current reality, where Beyonce enters a world that she built, to use Dr. Cooper's language, versus the reality of what she created. Beyonce is creating something that is allowing millions of women access to all kinds of emotional language that we haven't seen before in pop culture in this way. And I'm not comparing bell hooks to Beyonce, but I'm talking about the, the creation of something that didn't exist before you, before you did it, but you built on previous generations of work, even if they didn't call themselves that name. So did Beyonce read Bell? I actually think that's not even the, 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 the question, but I think how Beyonce is making her journey, because also feminism and all, all calls to any kind of political consciousness have to recognize journeys and evolution. And I think... Bell's failure to do that in calling Beyonce a terrorist, I think it is deeply unloving. It is ungenerous. I would argue that it is unfeminist, according to a feminism that is about a love and centering anybody's humanity. And I think there is a wrestling 
for um, bell hooks within her own emotionality that is actually disconnected from Beyonce. Whatever Beyonce represents, she's definitely a like a, a fire starter, a trigger for so many different types of women in different ways. And many of those conversations have been had. But certainly for my work around emotional justice and emotionality, what I really see here is a tyranny, actually. A requirement that, to use Beyonce's language, somebody bow down to a version of events that was constructed by um, Bell Hooks. And I think that it doesn't work to apply the lens of ideology to the reality of emotionality. I think you always become paralyzed and stuck. And certainly what I'm looking at is a, a deeply bruised emotionality wrapped in the language of feminist ideology and um, feminist practice and feminist eloquent terminology. When I read it I, it, I felt kind of intellectually confused. And then I thought, I'm intellectually confused because this really is emotionality masquerading as intellect for me. And, um, and so I, I think it's really important that we engage in that conversation. But also on Atriva's point, which is that the amount of work that has been done as a result of Lemonade is important and is part of so many people's entry into any kind of consciousness. Um, and that part should definitely be, um, be honored. But I do not honor what I consider to be deeply unloving and ungenerous critique. I think it is unmerited and it is unworthy. It is one worthy of, of leadership. It's unworthy of an elder towards somebody coming into a space where they're also finding their way. And more than all of that, I think it's unsisterly. I think it's deeply unsisterly. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I often talk about the idea of like how we think about our practice or our praxis within feminism, how we do the work that we do, what is the spirit with which we do it, what are the ethics with which we do it. And I just remember reading it again and again because I was like, hmm, okay, there's a moment where I think this could make a turn that's actually somewhere different than what I've seen in <laughs> regards to how Bella engaged fiancé, but it, it struck a similar tone. Now, thankfully, the language of terrorists wasn't inserted into this conversation, but that language lingers when we're reading that. And I think in engaging in this as someone who – Feminism includes Bell Hooks and Beyonce. And I mean, Bell Hooks is one of my first entry points into the discourse and the theory and still is someone I'm teaching and thinking through and the language that she created, as, as Dr. Cooper mentioned, the lane that was created for black feminist cultural criticism and pop cultural criti criticism in particular, I, I feel deeply indebted to this. So to have this kind of disconnect from someone I have so much deep respect and admiration for has also had caused and kind of emotional wrestling, I think, among a lot of black feminists, too, who are like, is there not room at the table for everybody? And is there not room for journey and growth? And is there not room for thinking through how work produces other work? I mean, that's so important to me to think about black feminist work, to me, the core womanist work, gender progressive, dynamic political work, create space for others. And I've seen that with Lemonade. Even if you don't get the project or think the project is doing something, look at what the project is produced and then reflect back on the project. I think that also is a practice that might help to see what are the kinds of work that black women are always doing in collaboration with one another, even when unintentionally doing that kind of work, that that best black feminist work happens in these communal spaces. And Lemonade certainly created a communal space, although at times and definitely high stakes in some of these conversations, I think it's important to acknowledge that. And I think it's something that got missed in Belle's critique or engagement with Beyonce's work here and has been missed in her engagement with the work in particular. 
Um, can, can I just add that I actually think Belle liked Lemonade. The thing that I got from the piece was that she liked it, but that she, you know, because she makes these particular concessions. I mean, let's be clear that it it compels a written response from her. Bell Hooks doesn't write blog posts. She doesn't do online think pieces. <laughs> That's not really her mode of interaction. So this work was so compelling that she had to respond. She was far more measured than she has been before because she didn't invoke the language of terrorism. She does invoke the problematic language of violence, of commodity, in ways that I really wish, you know, in this moment that we would complicate in black feminist thought uh, because I think that those are easy and low-hanging critiques like B is getting her paper, so we can't really trust anything she does. And it's like, well, any of us who are working hard for our money then apparently can't be trusted. And so I think that's a tough moment. But I think, like, the, the thing that I walked away with was this troubling sense that, like many of us, she really, really liked Lemonade, but she couldn't let herself like it too much. She couldn't be seduced. <laughs> she couldn't be seduced by the things that it seemed to promise. And, and, that, and that, to me, is like one of the big generational differences. I, too, was trained to think in black feminist terms. And, 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 and the way that you get trained to do it is like you look at things uh, and, you, and then you find out what they don't do well, right? This is the way that we train academics in general, is that we look at books, we look at, uh, you know, we look at artistic productions, we look at anything, and we say, what's wrong with it? Those are the first questions we ask. We ask, where does it fall short? Short, we ask, what are its limitations? Uh, we, we don't ask what does it do, what does it accomplish, what does it make possible, what's different now that we have encountered it. We always look at it in terms of its negative vision rather than its potential for positive vision. Um, and I think that I've seen a generation of black feminist critics, self-included, try to move away from that to say black women are working too damn hard for us to only look at the things they produce in terms of what they don't accomplish. And so I think that in many ways, she both, cre- she both she created this, like none of us could do this without her, but I also have this distinct sense that she is limited by the bounds of the method that she set up because that method always asks us to think about the limitations of a project um, and tells us that that is what real critical consciousness looks like, that we aren't true visionaries if we accept anything uh, as, as, as bringing joy, as bringing legitimate joy, right? And so that's my challenge as someone who feels like I've been trained to think about cultural text in the way that Delta taught us to do is that I don't want to, I don't want to, be bound by that. I don't want to just look at text and think about those text limitations. I also want to be able to think about the possibilities um, and, and what kind of things are not, we can now imagine or achieve because we have had this encounter. For thousands of women, Bell Hooks was an entry to um, feminism. There is a whole generation for whom Beyonce will literally be their entry to feminism. And they may enter through Beyonce and the kinds of performance that she does. But then they also may come across, for example, African feminists like Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie because she was featured on Flawless. So in some ways, what Beyonce does is globalize feminism that has always felt two things. So often, particularly um, white or particularly American, and it's expanding that space in ways for a whole generation that are also new and fresh. And for me always, I just think it's really important to honor journeys and even the evolution of what you create. I think that feminism, like all ideologies, there's a genealogy to what is created, what it looks like, the what it achieves and where it falls short. And to never negate in any way 
the power of what Bell Hooks has done, but to similarly and in parallel acknowledge what Beyonce is doing and has begun to do. Each matters. Each matters. Each matters. So how should I end this segment? I think I'll let Beyonce do the talking. Time for Hot Topic 2. Haiti, new African Union member and ongoing questions about the Red Cross and the rise and rise of the NGO industrial complex. Haiti has just joined the African Union, the body representing 54 countries across Africa. The body was previously committed to liberation movements. It now deals with spearheading development. And speaking of development, what happened to the $500 million given to Red Cross to redevelop Haiti post that day in 2010? It was 4.53 p.m., January the 12th, a Tuesday in 2010. Haiti, the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, has been hit by a major earthquake. The epicenter of the quake was around 10 miles from the capital, Port-au-Prince. The quake measured 7 on the Richter scale, a magnitude which is capable of causing widespread and heavy damage. Eyewitnesses in the city said that buildings shook violently. Then screams were heard as walls started to collapse, burying people under the rubble. If you're just joining us, we're following the breaking news out of Haiti. The largest, most powerful earthquake in the region's history has crippled the country, measuring 7.0. Its epicenter was just a few miles outside the capital, Port-au-Prince. There are reports of toppled buildings there. We've seen pictures of some dead bodies in the streets. There are reports of trapped victims screaming for help. The world is coming to an end. Earthquake just happened, and there's two to three houses that broken down. And there's a lot of people in the street everywhere. Some are wounded, badly wounded. It was a big earthquake. It lasts like 15 seconds, I think. It was very, very bad. I see everybody everywhere. I see two broken houses. And many people are walking in front of me, and they have blood all over. A city raised to rubble, bodies screaming, devastation, decimation. 200,000 people dead. Thousands more injured. 30,000 homes collapsed. Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince, in ruins. Outpouring started across mainstream media and social media. The world wanted to give, to help, to rescue and to rebuild. The requests for aid came. One came via the remixed version of We Are The World by a range of artists from different genres, including Haitian Wyclef Jean. We can let them suffer. No, we we cannot turn away. Billions and billions of dollars were given by private individuals, organizations, institutions. The Red Cross raised the most at $500 million, that's half a billion dollars. 
President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama went to the Red Cross headquarters soon after the earthquake. The images from Haiti are heartbreaking. Homes, hospitals, and schools are destroyed. Families searching for loved ones, parents trying to feed their children. But we can all do something. We can help the American Red Cross as it delivers the food, water, and medicine that can save lives. Donate $10 by texting Haiti to 90999. Visit redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Now, six years later, an in-depth feature in Huffington Post Impact, based on research by NPR and ProPublica, reveals a dossier of Red Cross failures on the ground in Haiti. The Red Cross claims it provided homes to 130,000 Haitians. The actual number? Six. Six homes from a total of $500 million. And that's just the beginning. Red Cross CEO announced ambitious plans to build brand new communities. They weren't built. And it wasn't just infrastructure where the Red Cross failed. The investigation revealed how Red Cross activity contributed to the spread of deadly cholera. Nine months after the earthquake, Haiti was hit by cholera. According to the investigation, Red Cross announced a huge campaign regarding soap and rehydration salts to stop the spread and save lives. Again, it never got off the ground. It just did not happen. This isn't the first time the Red Cross has run into trouble due to its failure to effectively distribute monies raised after disaster and billed according to its claims. The piece reveals a pattern of failure that includes 2012's Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Isaac. Sandy was the hurricane and storm in New York on October 29, 2012, that devastated parts of the city, leaving thousands without light, power or water for days and weeks. Hurricane Isaac hit the Gulf, impacting Mississippi and Louisiana, causing nearly $2 billion worth of damage. Take a listen to disaster expert Richard Reichenberg, who worked for the Red Cross during 2012's Hurricane Isaac. It was just clear to me that they weren't interested in doing mass care they were interested in the illusion of mass care. And I had, that had been one of the things we had brought up with the vice presidents in October, that the Red Cross was much more enamored with the illusion of doing the right thing than they were of doing the right thing. And, of course, there was Hurricane Katrina and the breaking of the levees. Red Cross was actually accused of financial mismanagement. A number of CEOs were forced to resign. Congress demanded a complete overhaul and a new CEO was recruited. So the Red Cross is an NGO. Its priorities are health and housing. It has a government mandate to work alongside the Federal Emergency Management Agency in relief efforts. All those changes. And yet, here we are in 2016, talking about failure after failure by the Red Cross on the ground in Haiti, just as it joins the African Union with a focus on development. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Brittany Cooper and Dr. Treva B. Lidsey. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.